There was a phrase in that song just really struck me. There was a lot in there, that chapter. Let your gentleness be known to all men. Wow. (laughs) My mom used to say to me, Danny, why do you have to be so rough? (laughs) Let your gentleness be known (laughs) to all men. Now, she didn't know that verse. She didn't know the Bible. (laughs) That verse would have been appropriate. Well, turn with me to 1 Peter this morning once again, chapter 2. And we're down around verses 24 and 25. And actually, this morning, I'm going to stop the exposition as we've been going verse by verse. And I said there was uh, perhaps a few theological issues or things that I wanted to highlight. But there are some uh, very important issues that 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25 are, are right in the middle of these very important issues. And I mentioned that Peter's statement in verse 24 there is very important for properly understanding Christ's work on the cross for us. And that verse reads this way, 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we have a concise statement here of the death of Christ and its purpose. He bore our sins in his body that we would stop sinning. Okay? That's what dying to sin means. So he bore our sins in his body that we would stop sinning, that we would die to sin, and instead of sinning, we would begin obeying. Live to righteousness. That's obedience. So in this statement, Peter's emphasis is not on the forgiveness aspect of our salvation. That's not his emphasis in these verses. His emphasis is on the transformative aspect. The change, transformation, change into something you were not. That's his emphasis. And that transformative aspect is to what? Stop sinning and begin obeying. This transformation is illustrated in the immediately following verse. For you were like sheep, verse 25, you were like sheep going astray. Okay, now that's, that's the disobeying. That's the being alive to sin. Okay, that's being alive to sin. You were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. That's obeying. That's living in righteousness, returning to Christ as the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. That's living to righteousness. That's foundational. And of course, it was Jesus who said, my sheep, what, they hear my voice and they follow me. So the purpose of Christ's death here that's emphasized is to transform us. And this is asserted in our New Testament, not only by Peter, but Paul, John, and James. I won't go through all three of those, but I could show you that this is asserted in all of those authors, that the purpose of Christ's death is to transform us. Uh, We'll just look at Titus. Titus 2, 11 through 14. You might turn there. I'm going to read through this and just make a few comments showing you that Peter and Paul's doctrine on this matter are the same. It's the same. Here's Paul writing to Titus, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now that's God's grace transforms us. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching that we should be forgiven. Now, that's not the emphasis here. It's the transformation that's the emphasis here. That, that grace teaches us, enables us that what? Denying ungodliness, denying worldly lust, 
We should live righteously, the dying to sin, the living to righteousness. It's right there. The same thing is in this text. And we should be what? Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. God's grace gives us a living hope. Where did we hear that? Well, we heard that in 1 Peter chapter 1. God's grace teaches us not to hope in this life, but to hope in the return of Jesus Christ. Few things will sanctify you more than this living hope. And the grace of God teaches us that living hope. Teaches us we're looking forward to it. We can't wait till it comes. We're looking forward to it. That'll change your life. Hope will change your life. And the early church was so strong in this. They were so strong. They got up every day saying, Maybe it'll be today that the Lord will return. That's why they live so different. They detach from the world because of this hope. It's the grace of God that teaches us that. So looking for the, for the blessed hope. Paul even puts an adjective in there. The blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Verse 14. Who gave himself for us. Okay, that's his death. He gave himself for us. For what purpose? The text says it. He gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed. That's not talking about redeem us from the guilt of every lawless deed. That's talking about redeeming us from sinning. The next phrase confirms that, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and what? And purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's transformation. That's why he died. That's what these texts are emphasizing. Titus 2.14 here tells us, the purpose of Christ's death and transformation, and it's parallel with 1 Peter 2.24. Very parallel text. They're teaching the same doctrine. So I won't multiply any more text. But the first point I desire you to grasp today is that the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection is more than forgiveness. Is more than forgiveness. He bore our sins that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. The purpose for Christ's death is more than forgiveness. That's the first thing I want you to grasp. And I've already shown that with these two texts. I don't need to multiply more texts. I certainly could. The second matter I desire you to grasp is that the New Testament teaches that these two aspects of salvation... Forgiveness and transformation cannot be separated in our experience. You either have both of them or you have neither. Those two aspects, forgiveness, transformation, in our experience cannot be separated. You either have them both or you don't have either. Now, that's the second thing I desire you to grasp this morning, and I'm going to demonstrate that. <laughs> Most commentaries and translations of the Bible rightly cross-reference 1 Peter 2.24 to Romans 6, verse 2. 1 Peter 2.24 is properly connected to Romans chapter 6. And most of your Bibles, if you look at your notes, they will do that for you. And so Romans chapter 6 is a key passage where the New Testament teaches us that Christ's work on the cross accomplishes more than forgiveness. And that forgiveness and transformation cannot be separated. And so turn to Romans chapter 6 and we'll kind of go through this relatively quickly. And we're not going to hit everything uh, that is in that passage, but those things relating to what I want you to grasp. So the context of Romans chapter 6 
is Paul is dealing with an objection to his teaching in chapters 3 through 5. And so you have to grasp that, and we'll spend a little time on that. In Romans chapter 5, Paul emphasizes the hope and the assurance which results from our justification. But at chapter 6, he sets that subject aside, and he really doesn't resume it again until chapter 8. He sets it aside at the end of chapter 5, and he has to deal with some objections. And that takes him all the way through chapter 6 and 7. And then he returns to assurance of salvation and the certainty of it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, which says, There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's assurance. And that's been his subject in chapter 5, and he picks that subject back up in chapter 8. But he interrupts himself because he can hear some of these confused or false teachers carping against his doctrine of assurance. And you can see why. I'll read just three verses out of chapter 5. And so what he's going to do in chapter 6, he's going to deal with a charge that his gospel of salvation by superabounding grace alone encourages people to sin. So now we can understand that objection by looking at some statements in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 9, much more, and Paul does that four or five times in this passage, much more than having now been justified by His blood, it's done, that's past tense completed action, having now been justified by His blood, much more what? we shall be saved from wrath to come. That's future. So what we have here is assurance now that we will be saved then. And the then here is the last day, the eschatological wrath that he's referring to in chapter 5, verse 9. So Paul is saying since we're justified by Christ's blood, we will be saved. We shall be saved from wrath, that eschatological judgment. We will be saved from that wrath through Him. So he's telling them that they are going to be saved in the last day. That's assurance, isn't it? He's telling them they can't not but be saved in the last day. And the formula is like this. Assurance now that we will be saved then in the last day. I don't know about you, but that's one of the most wonderful doctrines in all of the Bible. Now the objector says this. If people believe that there is no possibility that God will condemn them in the future, they will be encouraged to continue in sin. That's the objection. Well, Paul does it in 5 verse 17. Same thing. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, that's now, those who receive now abundance of grace, and the gift of righteousness, that's the now, those who receive that now, will, in the future, will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Same thing. Assurance now that we will reign in life then at Christ's second coming. And that's the reference in verse 17 also, is Christ's second coming. So he is assuring them now that they will reign with Christ when he comes. Okay. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Oh, I would like to talk about that, but I'm not going to. <laughs> the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded... Grace abounded much more. Now we have assurance that no matter how many or how great our sins are, 
Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Nobody is beyond the reach of abounding grace to be saved. No one. That's what he's saying. The believer in Christ will be saved regardless of how great his or her sins have been. For where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now the objector says, Paul, if you assure people now that they cannot be condemned then in the future because where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, that will encourage them to be lax regarding sin. They will continue in sin that grace may abound. That's the objection we're dealing with. So, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul begins to address that objection. So, Paul echoes the objector's charge. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's what they were accusing Paul's doctrine of promoting. We might as well just continue in sin that God's grace will abound. See, they have separated forgiveness and justification from transformation. That's what they're accusing Paul of doing. That's what they're accusing Paul of doing. So, skipping over Paul's certainly not outrage in those words, Paul gives a brief but very insightful answer in the form of a question. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul says there's something else that has happened to us besides justification. Something else has happened. We've died to sin. And for his argument to hold, he means that's true of every justified person. And so he says, how shall we who have died to sin continue in it? Well, the answer is obvious. You can't. I mean, we don't even need to go any further. He's going to expand on that. But the answer is, you can't do that. If you're dead to the thing, it has no influence over you anymore. That's his argument. Everyone who is justified by the cross has also died to sin by the cross. That's his argument. And let's watch him develop that. So the objector, the objector here doesn't properly understand Christ's death. That's the problem. And the effect of it on those who are united with it. That's the objector's problem. He's got a reductionist view of the power of Christ's death. That's the problem about what that death accomplishes. Christ does more for us than being the basis for our justification. He has also caused us to die to sin. To die to sin means sin no longer has influence, power, control over you. Sin does not have the mastery over the Christian such that he or she will continue in sin, to live in sin. More needs to be said. Keep following me. Verses 6 through 7 and 14 show us what Paul has in mind when he says that every believer in Christ has died to sin. Look at verses 6 through 7. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. See that? For he who has died has been freed from sin. And everyone has died in this sense in Christ. We have been crucified with Him. It's not like some Christians have been crucified with Him and some Christians haven't been crucified with Him. No, no. Our baptism teaches us we've all been crucified with Him. That's what our baptism teaches us. That we've all been crucified with Him. For what purpose? 
for this purpose, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And then he puts it, for he who has died, what? Has been freed from sin. It's not only a possibility. The next phrase tells us it's an actuality. See that? For he who has died has been freed from sin. So it's not waiting for you to flip on some switch to make that work. That's a whole mistreatment of this passage that I'm not going to get into. But the switch is on. As soon as you're united with Christ, the switch is on. The effect of his death is on. So he who has died has been freed from sin. So that's Paul's argument. And then verse 14, I, I know I've jumped over a lot, but he, he, he draws to a conclusion there in verse 14 regarding the Christian. For sin will not have dominion over you. That's not a command. That's not a command. That's an indicative. That is telling you the state of a Christian. For sin will not have dominion over you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. That's the description of every believer. Not under law, but under grace. So, it's a description of every believer. And it is Paul's conclusion, this is Paul's conclusion of the first part of his answer to the objection. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in grace? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's answer is no, for sin will not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. You see how verse 14 ties right back to verse 2. It's his answer. And he's explained how that grace operates by us being united with Christ's death on the cross is what makes verse 14 a reality for every Christian. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about these things. This is important stuff. Eschatology is great, but this is much more serious than eschatology or ecclesiology or a billion other subjects. This is the root of what happens on the cross and when we're united to Jesus Christ. So... I explained last week that when we die to something, the thing loses its influence over us. I've said that enough. Now, it loses its influence over us not because the thing has changed, but because we have been changed. Okay? We die to sin not because sin has changed, but we have changed. We die to that thing because we have changed. The salvation that Christ brings to us not only justifies, but it forever radically alters our relationship to sin. Wonderful work of the cross. Let me repeat that statement. The salvation that Christ brings to us not only justifies, but it forever radically alters our relationship to sin. We used to love sin. Now what? We hate it and we want to get rid of it. We used to run after it and try to hold on to it. Now we hate it and we want to cast it off. Our relationship to sin has been radically altered by our union with Christ's death and resurrection. That's the doctrine of Romans 6. So, Paul's answer answers the charge with that, with that question. I've said it enough. But there's more. There's more to Paul's argument. There's a positive side about it. The believer has not only died to sin... He has been raised with Christ to newness of life. Therefore, we were buried. I'm quoting Romans 6 verse 4 now. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. 
that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should, listen to this, walk in newness of life. That's wonderful. Just as Christ was raised in the power of the resurrection to a totally new life, He was born under sin. He was born under the law. He was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. And all of this doctrine. And He's raised in power, in newness of life. Just as that has happened to Christ, Paul is saying, that's happened to you. That's happened to you. He was raised from the dead by the glory of of the Father. Even so, we also, what? Should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, and certainly we have, that if is a sense, since we've been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. The switch is on. You don't have to throw some other switch for the the power of being in the likeness of His resurrection. It's on. This is a full, powerful, complete salvation. By being united to His death and resurrection, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. And he's arguing that we can't continue in sin, is what he's arguing. And that's why. There's two facets of that argument. We've died with him, which says we can't continue with sin. And we've risen with him in newness of life, which says we can't continue in sin, that grace will abound. That's his argument in this passage. So, Peter and Paul are very close. Paul died to sin, raised up with Christ to walk in newness of life. Peter died to sin that we might live to righteousness. You you see how beautifully parallel that doctrine is. You know, and so much for the, the scholars that are, they're dumb, okay? They're writing papers how Paul and Peter don't agree. You know, a high school student can read First Peter and read Romans and other places in the New Testament and write a whole list of how Paul and Peter agree. And First Peter 2.24 is properly expounded in Romans chapter 6. They teach the same doctrine on this subject. All right, so Paul's argument that we cannot continue in sin that grace might abound is based on the fact that we cannot separate the justification of chapter 5 from the sin-killing, newness-of-life-giving, union with Christ's death and resurrection of chapter 6. Okay? That's right. He refutes the objection by asserting that that the salvation we receive from Christ includes more than justification and forgiveness. It includes a transformation of our lives because we are united with Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, now, a caution. Some of you are already squirming about this. A caution at this point to avoid an extreme. Some teachers focusing on the expression having died to sin, yeah, that's past tense, completed action. Some teachers, focusing on that and ignoring, like verses 11 through 13 in this very chapter, they go to the extreme and say the believer can have an experience of being totally free from struggling with sin. It says you've died to sin, so... You can have the experience of being totally free from struggling with sin. Well, verses 11 through 13 simply don't support going to that extreme. Verses 11 through 13 tell us to reckon ourselves dead, and then it tells us to no longer present your instruments as instruments of sin. Okay? 
and instead present the instruments of your body as instruments of righteousness. Okay? So Paul's very aware that, that we are still going to have this battle with sin. Okay? He's very aware of that. And I'm not denying that. In other words, he, he's telling us we will still experience sin trying to assert its mastery over us. And I think that's a good description of how sin operates in the believer's life. Sin is always there. It's in the body. Paul's doctrine of the body, we can't get into all that here. But it's still there. And what is it doing? It's trying to assert the mastery over us that it used to have. Okay? But, By the power of Christ's death and resurrection, we can say no. We can say, I've presented my mind for many years to that sin. And by God's grace, I am now going to present my mind to being righteous in my thought life. That's what Paul is saying. You had no power or ability to do that before. You just were a slave to sin. But now that you're in Christ, you do have the power and the ability to do that. And Christ isn't going to do it for you. You need to do exactly what those commands say, but you do that on the basis of your union with the death and the resurrection of Christ that has undone the mastery of sin over you. That is foundational doctrine of sanctification. Absolutely foundational. So no, we don't go to that extreme. We're not perfectionists if we, if we want to use that, that expression. So how to actually do that, how to resist that mastery, he gives us advice right there in verses 11 through 13. And then he picks that up also in Romans 8. Romans 8 also shows us how we overcome the mastery of sin. So that's the second matter I've desired that you grasp this morning, is that the New Testament teaches that these two aspects of salvation, forgiveness and transformation, cannot be separated. They cannot be separated. You either have both or neither. 1 Peter 2.24 And Romans 6 clearly teach this. Now, why would anyone want to separate them? I mean, it's a wonderful, wonderful provision in Christ. And this is where, yes, it, I'm going to be a bit polemic. It's critical. Why would anybody want to separate them? Well, because... There are many people in our culture, in the religion of America, that do this all the time. Everybody's going to heaven, right? Isn't that the great lie of, of American religion? We call it universalism. And why are they going to heaven? Well, because Christ died and they're forgiven. And someone has told them that kind of a gospel and that's all they've told them. They have nothing other than that. And they all, they're, all, they're all going to heaven. So many people to varying degrees in our culture have been told they are Christians or saved or whatever and they're forgiven who show no evidence of dying to sins and living to righteousness. They show no evidence or interest in any of that. They're not interested in that. You know, and it breaks your heart. It should break your heart. If my treatment of 1 Peter 2 and Romans 6 is correct, these people are not saved. These people are lost. So separating forgiveness from transformation such that you can have the one without the other allows them and their blind guides to continue believing these people are Christians and on their way to glory. 
That's not a good thing. It's not love. Not truth. Rather than trying to awaken these people up to waken them up to this erroneous teaching, they have encouraged such people in a dreadful false hope. A dreadful false hope. Heading for those terrible words from the Lord Jesus. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They never died to sin. And someone told them they will sail through the judgment. So that's one of the reasons people desperately want to try to exegete out of this and say these two things in experiential Christianity can be completely separated. You can have forgiveness and you can live the rest of your life in sin. And the reason they want to do that is they know countless numbers of people that are in that condition. Not only that, they have personally given assurance to countless numbers of people that they are just fine. And some of us have done that ourselves. So that's why they desperately want to separate these two. The implications of those two not separated are massive for the church in America. But it's exactly what much of the religion in America needs. Okay? The second reason, there's more than just two probably, why some want to separate those things, is those who desire to separate those things, they tend to think that, that in insisting that fruit always accompanies forgiveness is teaching salvation by works. Okay? They actually accuse someone like me, they'll actually, they'll actually accuse me of that, that I am teaching a doctrine of salvation by works. Okay? And also, you know, associated with this is, is there's no call to repentance. You know, you can kind of tell when you're running into this strand is there's no call to repentance. You don't even have to repent. You can be saved with no repentance whatsoever. You know, you can't do that. The New Testament does not... Repentance isn't a work. But you can't be saved without repentance. You can't fulfill the Great Commission without repentance. Jesus said, go into all the world and what? In my name, preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what some will say is, that's works. To preach To preach there must be repentance is to preach salvation by works. That's wrong. Okay? Peter wasn't (laughs) preaching salvation by works on the day of Pentecost (laughs) when he said repent. Okay? (laughs) Repent and be baptized. Okay? He was not preaching works. And neither... Is Paul advocating works when he says God is now demanding that all men everywhere repent? I mean, you can't, you gotta, you can't write repentance out of your gospel. And repentance is a wonderful thing, by the way, when it's preached correctly. It's God's invitation to say, come back. The door's open. The door's open for the prodigal son to get out of eating pig slop and come back to the loving Father. That's repentance. Repentance as the doors open. Come back. So, some want to separate it because they think it sounds like works. So those two reasons. So, in regard to those who desire to separate these matters and charge us, with teaching a works-based salvation, I have much more to say, but I'll do that on Wednesday evening, okay? Uh, We can discuss this much more thoroughly 
on Wednesday evening, and uh, I'll announce it when, when we're going to do that. It won't be this Wednesday, but we'll do that. But what I would like to consider further, we've got a little bit of time left this morning, is this. Let's broaden our definition of salvation to include what we've seen in 1 Peter 2 and Romans 6. That's our definition of salvation. Let's broaden it. Often people think of salvation to mean nothing more than forgiveness and deliverance from being punished under God's wrath. This reductionism is causing a lot of serious problems. I've been saying that. When we evangelize people and tell them the great news that Christ offers to save them, let's tell them that He will forgive them and transform them. Let's tell them that's what He will do for you. He will forgive you and He will transform you. Let's tell them all of what He will do for them. He will forgive you and He will transform you. He will forgive all their guilt before God's justice. And He will begin the process of making them holy like Himself. On a course of transformation. He does both. He will deliver you from the slavery of your drug addiction. He will deliver you from the slavery of your porn addiction. He will deliver you from the slavery of your anger or your love of money or on and on we can go. He is a Savior that can save you in the full sense of that word. And let nobody in this building despair of that. No matter how much guilt or how much power. And sin is powerful. And guilt is grievous. Grace abounds much more. Amen? And that grace abounds through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how you preach the gospel or share the gospel with people. And we need to hear that. Any sinner who has real conviction of sin wants to know there's some hope that he or she can stop sinning. You just show them the work of Christ. And as Christians... That's where we go. We go right back there in Romans 6 and we reckon ourselves dead. We remember. We got to remember. My baptism is to remind me of that. We go, Paul says it. We, I can't go through all of Romans 6, but it's right there. Don't forget. You are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. Meditate on that and then go back on the battlefield. Okay? Okay, all right, so we want to broaden our definition of salvation to include those things. He will forgive and transform us. In this regard, Jesus taught the same doctrine, of course. I mean, it's not in such detailed form, but, you know, remind people of Jesus' wonderful promise in in John chapter 8. Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides. If the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. There it is. Christ has, the son has the power to make you free from the practice of sin. And he gets the job done. If the son shall make you free, it might work, it might not. No, 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 no. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And how does the Son make us free from being mastered by sin? By coming from heaven, incarnating Himself into a human life, and going to the cross and dying and rising for us. That's how the Son makes us free. 
When Jesus made that statement, if the Son shall make you free, he is fully aware the only way I'm going to free Dan Cafesi is to go and die and rise for him. That's how he makes us free. That's what he's done. And the apostles explain how that, where that freedom has come from. It's come from the cross. Christ crucified and risen. Now that's just a wonderful thing. That's a wonderful thing. So, once we've defined salvation in these broader terms, if we're evangelizing or trying to feed our own souls, once we've defined salvation, we can tell any lost person that Jesus is calling them to trust in Him as their Savior. That's it. Define what He does and say, you know what else is even more fabulous? He's calling you to be saved by Him. This very salvation, He's calling you. Define salvation and tell them to trust in Him as their Savior or receive Him as their Savior. Now, here's a twist. You don't need to complicate it by adding, receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Ah, no, don't do it. Don't complicate it. It's very simple. Receive Jesus as Savior. You see, don't add, and Lord. No, once we've defined salvation to be inclusive, as Peter and Paul do, receiving the Lord Jesus as Savior is all that's required. Define salvation correctly. The Savior brings that correctly defined salvation Believe in Him as Savior. Don't add anything else. Spend your time defining the salvation He brings and then tell them to believe in Him as Savior alone. Now, I know the addition of the end Lord thing has come trying to deal with the problem of how these things are separated. I realize all that. And those that add that phrase would agree with me, you don't separate them. All I'm saying is, that's not the best way to do this. And if you come on Wednesday night, now this is a shameless advertisement, (laughs) if you come on Wednesday night, we'll discuss this whole matter of the language we use and we should use. And I'm encouraging you to define salvation as both of those and drop the receive Him as Lord and just receive Him as Savior. Okay, when you add that other phrase, you're saying receiving Him as Savior is not enough. And that makes the hair on my back stand up. Because it's preparationism. It's like that Puritan preparationism. And so forth. But we can work through all of that on Wednesday night. So I'm almost done here. But I need to say this so I'm not misunderstood. By, by me emphasizing that salvation is more than forgiveness. Don't in any way lessen your emphasis on, on forgiveness. Don't lessen that. Just tell people how much more Christ can do for them. And don't put that off to sometime later. Tell them He's the Savior and tell them the central things that He does. That'll give those that are flat on their backs under the power of guilt and the power of sin hope whether they're believers or unbelievers. So, don't de-emphasize anything of an emphasis on forgiveness. Just, just tell people how much more Christ can do for them. Christ can make them into something they are not. 
You know, when you're young, you're not sick of yourself. But after you grow more and grow more, at times you become sick of yourself. I'm sick of me! (laughs) Where in Scripture do we find that? Romans chapter 7, right? Oh, wretched man that I am! Now that guy needs to hear the gospel, okay? He does! And when you run into people like that, they need to hear the gospel and all that Christ does. And we need that as Christians. So, God can make someone into something they are not. Did not Paul say God has chosen the things which are not to shame the things that are? Being one of the things which are not makes you a perfect candidate for our glorious Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you are a glorious Savior. And when Simeon lifted up the baby Jesus, as we heard this morning earlier, He said, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have set before all peoples. And Lord, here we are this morning in this place on this earth, hearing of the wondrous, powerful works of your Son. Oh Lord, how thankful we are And forgive us when we're so slow to come and trust you and believe in you. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, Lord, that he would take the things that belong to Jesus and disclose them to us. Lord, that's what we need, a new, fuller vision of how powerful and great your salvation is, Lord. And if there's any of us here that are on our backs, ready to despair, oh Lord, direct us and them to your Son and what He's done. And may your Holy Spirit do what Paul prayed, that we might know the height and the depth and the breadth and the love that you have. Lord, you know better than we what we need Lord, we ask you to see what we need and then provide it for us. We thank you for an opportunity to worship you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.